Good morning. If you want to go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 7, and we'll get right in. Daniel 7, if you remember, is a parallel to Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel interprets it. In Daniel 7, Daniel has a dream, and the angel uh, helps him interpret it. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream is from uh, man's perspective. He sees these, this colossus, and it's made of uh, gold and silver and brass and these, these precious metals. And it seems like a splendid thing from man's perspective. But when we get to Daniel 7 and we see Daniel's dream and we see it from God's perspective. He doesn't see it as gold and silver. He sees these empires as beasts, these, these uh, ravenous beasts that come up from the sea. And it's, it's intended to be a terrifying image. And so as I stand up here this morning, uh, and I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I come to you confessing to you that I don't know everything there is to know about the end times and that there are a lot of people who disagree uh, over this particular issue of eschatology which is the study of last things and so we always approach this with a great deal of humility and I don't break fellowship with anybody over th that kind of thing and I, I am you know me I'm firmly in the pre-trib rapture I could spend about two days proving I think from the scripture to you but, uh, but if I happen to be wrong and, uh, and we end up going through uh, part of the tribulation period. Either way, it's going to be all right because God's going to take care of us. Uh, so uh, whether we're taken out of here in a miracle, you know, the church was born in a miracle on the day of Pentecost, and I believe it's going to be taken out in a miracle, which is the harpazo, uh, the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4. But, uh, but either way, God's going to take care of us. Uh, he said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And so it's, it's all good. But the reason we study this is because coming events cast their shadows before them. Because I know some people say, well, we're not going to be here, so why even study about the tribulation period? Well, uh, for one thing, it's in the Word of God. And all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and righteousness. Uh, but we need to know what's going on. But from a pastor's perspective, I cannot operate under the assumption that everyone who comes to church on Sunday morning is saved. And that they'll be ready for the rapture. There may be some who are left behind uh, if the pre-trib rapture is true. And if that be the case, then uh, they need to know what's going on. Dr. John Wolvard, some of you may know him. He was one of the uh, founding members of Dallas Theological Seminary. And he, he gave the analogy of uh, Christmas time. The rapture is not signaled uh, by signs. There are no signs for the rapture. Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. It's a sudden event. It's a, it's a secret time. Uh, it, it comes without warning. The Jews are the people of signs, not the church. Paul said the Jews require a sign. But here's how Dr. Wolverd uh, gave the analogy that, uh, that the tribulation period is kind of like Christmas. You read in the Gospels, particularly Matthew 24, uh, Mark 13, Luke 21, and as you read in there, there's all these signs of the tribulation period. The birth pain signs, wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters, catastrophes, uh, pestilences and plagues, and all of these kind of things. And the, the, these are the, the signs of the tribulation period. Okay? Now, at Christmas time, every year, 
and it seems like it gets earlier and earlier every year. Around October, they start putting the Christmas decorations out. And, uh, and so we know that Christmas is approaching because the radio stations are playing Christmas music. The Christmas trees are out. Santa Claus is in the mall. And, and, uh, and, and so we've been receiving these circulars in the mail to tell us what we need to buy and uh, things that we just can't live without, the latest devices and gadgets. But Thanksgiving, on the other hand, it comes with very little fanfare, does it? We don't see inflatable turkeys. We don't see pilgrims in the mall. Uh, there, there's no signs with Thanksgiving. But like Dr. Walford says, when we see the signs of Christmas, we know that Thanksgiving is near. And just like we see the signs of the tribulation period beginning to cast their shadows on us, we know that the rapture is even closer to that because we're taken out before that. Okay. Daniel chapter 7. Now last week we looked at the vision of the four beasts in some detail. And this will not be quite as cumbersome this week. But let's, let's just pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share your word. God, I ask for your anointing. I pray that you would uh, confirm your word with signs following. God, that you would give us wisdom. Open up the eyes of our understanding that we may behold wonderful things of your law. And, and above all things, God... Not just that we would be puffed up by our knowledge, but that we would grow uh, in our love and our faith and our hope. And that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we ask all these things in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. All right. So we ended last week and the angel gave a summary of the four beasts. He says in verse uh, 17, the angel said, The great beasts which are four are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Four, not five. This corresponds with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He saw four empires, four world empires. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So in both Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's dream, there are four world empires followed by a fifth empire, which is the kingdom of God, which will never be removed. And that's very important because the fourth kingdom, the fourth empire is replaced by the kingdom of God. And as we'll see in just a moment, this is not to be allegorized. This is not just to be viewed merely as symbolic, but literal. Jesus Christ is literally coming to the earth. He is literally going to rule and reign for a thousand years. The Bible says that. And I'm going to talk about the millennium, the thousand year reign at some point. Maybe next week, maybe not. But, but uh, we're going to talk about that. That these prophecies are not to be viewed as merely symbolic. They're not to be allegorized. Whenever the plain, literal sense of Scripture makes sense, seek no other sense. That's a principle of biblical interpretation. And he says, so, so in both Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's dream, there are four world, four world empires conquered by the fifth, which is the Son of Man. In Daniel 2, it's a stone cut without hands. The stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. He's a living stone. He is the, the rock. And... Um, and that's, that's going to happen. And in Daniel 7, same thing. you got four kings, and then after that, the saints possess the kingdom. All right, so now we get to verse 19. Go ahead and go to the next slide, guys, if you will. Thank you. So then he says in verse 19, Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, and exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass. That's interesting. 
which devoured, broke in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet. And of the ten horns which were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spake great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given unto the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So we'll stop there for now. Now the first thing I observed is that Daniel did not ask the angel for clarification of the first three beasts. He only asked about the fourth one. So that we could conjecture as to why, we don't know for certain. I think it's pretty safe to assume that Daniel didn't need clarification on it because he understood those three beasts to be Babylon, Medo-Persia, and then uh, Greece. And we'll talk about that. In Daniel chapter 8, the Bible tells us that the third empire is Greece. That uh, there's, a, there's a goat that's represented, uh, representative of Greece and Alexander the Great. Uh, we might also say that as far as the first three beasts go, um, we don't really need to stress about those. We don't need to argue and fuss and fight about uh, who they are. Because what really matters are the fourth and the fifth kingdom. Those are the ones that you and I need to concern ourselves with primarily because those are the ones that are, that are yet future. And so he asks for clarification in this. Now, he describes this beast. He says he's exceeding uh, dreadful, and he's diverse from all the others. Now, a couple of times in Daniel chapter 7, the Holy Spirit makes a point to say that this fourth kingdom is different it's not like the others. It's diverse. And if you remember, the first three, they were represented by definite animals. There was a lion with wings. There was a bear. And then there was a leopard that had wings. But this beast uh, is a nondescript beast. John, uh, or nor Daniel, neither one, can accurately, it can't be pigeonholed into one beast. It's, it's nondescript. And it's different than all the rest. It's exceeding dreadful. His teeth were iron. That should bring you back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream where the last empire is iron and then it had ten toes that were a mixture of clay and iron together. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there's ten toes. In uh, Daniel's dream, it's ten horns. But either way, you've got the ten and the ten. So these are uh, parallel. Now the eyes speak of intelligence. This is not just an empire, but it's a human. It's an individual. And he's, he's going to be different than anybody that's ever lived. We're going to talk about the Antichrist today. And the thing that I found most interesting is that he's referred to over 30 times in the Old Testament. He's referred to about 13 different times in the New Testament. And most of the time, he's not called Antichrist. In the book of Revelation, he's not called Antichrist. He's called the Beast, uh, Apollyon, uh, various other names. He's called the the son of perdition, uh, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin. Uh, in the Old Testament, he goes by many names, the Assyrian, the prince that is to come. And uh, there's many different references. And in Daniel, he's called the little horn. And if you remember the title of the sermon in the first slide I had, you notice a characteristic of him that's mentioned, I think, three or four times. He's the little horn well, what does it say about his mouth? He's got a big mouth. And I, and I don't mean to be flippant because there's nothing funny about him. That's one, way, that's one of his chief characteristics. 
is he's, he speaks. He, he's very persuasive in his, uh, his words. He has a boastful mouth it speaks of in Daniel 7, verse 8, verse 20, uh, verse 25. And, and I missed one. I noticed the other day in verse 11. Um, verse 11, it also talks about the great words. So that's one that didn't make it to press. Uh, it's a late entry here, but verse 11. Notice he's, he's stouter than all of his fellows. He's physically more uh, imposing. Now, I think it's interesting also that he's called the little horn, which, which leads me to believe that he will, in the beginning, seem very inconsequential. There will be a dramatic rise to power. That's why it's pointless for us to speculate uh, on who the identity of the Antichrist is. It's, it's a fruitless thing. It, it might be a fun hobby for us to do, but uh, it really doesn't help us at all. Now, you notice it says that he prevailed against the saints. In verse 21, the same horn, this is the little horn, he made war with the saints and prevailed against him. Now, if you are a Christian and you know the New Testament, that should give you pause. That should give you pause. Because in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, and I've got the reference here. I'm not going to turn there, but I'm going to quote it as best I can. Jesus asked the disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're the prophet, some... Uh, just like today, there are many opinions of who Christ is. But Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Whom do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And he says, and you're Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Notice it's yet future. Notice Jesus said, I will build my church. The church is yet future in Matthew 16. Are we all English majors in here? We understand that grammatical structure. That If I say, I will build my church, it means I haven't built it yet. If I say, I will go to El Viarta after the service, it means I haven't had Mexican food yet. See, I know what you, some of you are thinking. I'm a prophet. No, I'm just kidding. The, the church was yet a future entity in Matthew 16. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And remember the last part of that phrase? He said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whoa, that should give you pause. Because Daniel says that the Antichrist is going to prevail against, quote, the saints. So that tells me that this group of saints is different than us group of saints. Now in Luke 7, verse 28, and again, for sake of time, I'm not going to turn there. But Jesus talks about John the Baptist. And he says, among those that are born of women, there has not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Now that's a profound statement. That means John the Baptist was greater than Moses. John the Baptist was greater than King David. John the Baptist was greater than Abraham. I mean, that's a real mind-blowing statement, isn't it? He said, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. So that tells me that me and John are not the same kind of saint. And we could say that's true on a lot of levels, right? He's a lot, you know, a lot more devoted in his life to God than I've ever been. 
So that's a gross understatement. But Jesus says that the church saints are different than John. John the Baptist closed the Old Testament. Jesus said the law and the prophets prophesied until, he didn't say Malachi, until John, he said. John the Baptist closed the door or the chapter on the Old Testament. He closed the book. So John is a different kind of saint than I am. And some of you say, well, Henry, you're no saint at all. We're not talking about sanctification here. We're talking about justification. Uh, I'm a saint. If you're a believer, you're a saint. Now, we're so used to saying, well, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace, that you don't realize that when the Bible refers to Christians, he calls us saints. And it just means set apart, holy ones, hagios. <laughs> now, in Ephesians 3, and again, I don't have time to turn there. But in Ephesians 3, by the way, don't just take my word for it. Get in your Bible and make sure that what I'm telling you is the truth. Because I might be wrong. I'm not, but I might be. <laughs> Get in the Bible and search it. Don't believe it just because I said it. Don't. Um, the book of Acts says that the Bereans were no, more noble than those who were in Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures daily to see whether or not Paul was telling the truth. Do the same thing with me. I invite you to fact check me on the Bible. Okay. So in Ephesians 3, Paul says this in verses 5 and 6. He says that up until that time... The church was a mystery. So when you read the Old Testament, there are no references to the church. Or if there are, it's very veiled. Because up until the days of the, the apostles and Jesus Christ, the church was not revealed. Ephesians 3, 5 and 6. Paul says, it's now my privilege to let you know the mystery which in ages past was not made known unto the sons of men. But is now revealed unto the apostles and to the saints. <clears throat> now this judgment, he says in verse 22, is in favor of the saints. He says judgment was given to the saints. doesn't mean that the saints were judged, but it means that God ruled in their favor. And it says the time that the saints, excuse me, the saints of the Most High. That would be worth a word study for you if you're looking for a homework assignment. Uh, look up how many times... God is called the Most High God in Daniel. Now in Genesis 14, and again, for sake of time, I'm not going to turn there. <clears throat> but I invite you to fact check me. In verses 17 through 24, we find a story where uh, Lot has been uh, kidnapped, and Abraham has to go rescue his nephew, Lot. And, uh, and he goes to battle, and, and Abraham wins a battle, and he's met by this mysterious character named Melchizedek. And the Bible calls Melchizedek a priest of the Most High God. The Hebrew word there is El Elyon. And he, said, and he blessed Abraham. He said, blessed are you of the Most High God. And he says, possessor of heaven and earth. This title of God, El Elyon, it speaks of the fact that no matter what governing authorities are in place, there is a higher authority. I don't care who's in the White House, there's a higher authority. I don't care who's in the governor's mansion, there's a higher authority. I don't care who presides over the United Nations, there's a higher authority. And even Nebuchadnezzar, even Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged there is a most high God and he puts in power who he will and whom he will he abases and humbles. Even Nebuchadnezzar, who had an issue with pride, would you agree with me? <laughs> he had an issue with pride, but God revealed unto him who is the most high God. <clears throat> 
And that's important for Daniel and his friends to remember. It's important for the exiles to remember because they're in captivity. And they need to know there's a higher authority than the Babylonians. They need to know there's a higher authority than the Persians. They need to know there's a higher authority than the Greeks. They need to know there's a higher authority than the Caesars of Rome. There's going to be a higher authority than this man who's the little horn with the big mouth. Let's go to the next slide. More about more diversity in the fourth kingdom. He says in verse 23, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms. Notice again, it speaks of the, the diversity of it. And shall devour not just Jerusalem, not just the area of the Mediterranean, but how, how far and wide? The whole world. Okay. You say, well, that happened in the Roman Empire. No. Even in the first Roman Empire, they didn't conquer the known world. If you've ever read your history, you know that there were areas that Rome couldn't conquer. Hadrian had that big wall, you know, with the Scots trying to keep them out. There were areas that Rome never conquered in, uh, in ancient uh, times. So there is yet to be a one-world empire that, that fits the description of Daniel 23, 7, 23, and 24. But how is it diverse? Now, how was Rome different from Greece, Medo-Persia, and Babylon? Well, it was this, this idea of imperialism. When, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar conquered, he didn't just destroy everything. He actually uh, brought the brightest and the best, and he assimilated them uh, to the culture of the Babylonians. Same thing with Persia. Cyrus was a, uh, he was a, I hate to keep using this word, but a magnanimous type ruler. And he gave permission for the Jews to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. And, uh, but not so with Rome. Rome was uh, imperialistic. Rome, Rome would not set up a vassal king. Rome would set up their own people. That's why Pilate was in power. You know, Rome put, Caesar would put his own, uh, and it was very oppressive. It was different. It's a one world uh, system, the whole earth. Now, we also see, when we get to uh, verse 24, that there's ten kings. By the way, the horn, we don't really understand that idiom. But in ancient times, the horn is a symbol of power, okay? An animal with a horn, that was uh, symbolic of its strength or its power. And the fact that this beast has ten horns speaks of its great uh, strength and authority. The ten horns out of the kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. Notice it says they shall arise. And another shall rise after them. That means he's different from the ten. He's the eleventh horn. And he shall be diverse from the first. So he's not like the ten. He's different than the ten. And he shall subdue three kings. So apparently, out of these ten kings, there's three that resist the program of the Antichrist. And then he explains it to them more clearly from what I see. He makes them an offer that they can't refuse. There's this little horn stage. And so he removes the three. And so now there's seven that are subject unto him. All right, let's go to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. Now, Revelation 13 is the companion to Daniel 7. 
Now, sometimes we don't give much thought to when the Bible was written, what, what, when letters were written. Revelation was the last book written in the New Testament. That and John, the Gospel of John. Those, those were the, uh, they're, they're the newest books of the New Testament. John wrote Revelation, I'm going to conservatively say, after 80 A.D., Okay, conservatively, probably later than that. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by Titus. Okay, now there's a large segment of Christianity that says that all of the prophecies in Daniel have already been fulfilled and that they were fulfilled either in the days of Antiochus, Epiphanes, we'll get to him in a few weeks, Lord willing. He was before the days of Christ. But there's many who believe that all of this was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Titus destroyed the temple. There's a big problem with that. I hope you can place together the chronology and understand that in, in Revelation 13, John is still looking for the beast even after the temple's been destroyed. So Titus is not the Antichrist. Are you there in Revelation 13? Verse 1, and I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Does that sound familiar? It should. Having seven heads and how many horns? So, so John's still looking for the ten horns after 70 A.D. That's significant. He's still looking for it. It's still yet in the future. And upon his heads ten crowns, and upon his heads is the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard. Remember, that was the third empire we saw. His feet were as the feet of the bear. That was the second empire in, Neb in Daniel's dream. His mouth is the mouth of a lion. That was the first empire that Daniel saw. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So now we, we see the source of the little horn's power. The reason he's such a bad, formidable foe is not just because he's a military genius, not because he's a great speaker, but it's because he is in energized by Satan himself. Verse 3, I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Now, what you have to understand is that Satan is a great counterfeiter. And so what we see in Revelation 13 is Satan's counterfeit of the Trinity, the dragon being uh, the counterfeit of the Father, and the beast being the counterfeit of the Son, and the false prophet being the counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. And we know that Jesus Christ was wounded on Calvary's cross and he came back to life, did he not? If not, we need to go home. <laughs> Wake up, guys, come on. On the third day he rose again and he's alive forevermore. He's, thank you. All right. The Antichrist is going to mimic the death and the resurrection of Christ. Notice he has a deadly wound and it's healed. Now, some say, well, is it a real miracle or is it a counterfeit? It doesn't matter. It's an effective counterfeit because everybody believes it. So it doesn't matter if it's real or not. And they worship the dragon. You know, that's always, that has always been Lucifer's desire is to be worshipped. That has always been Satan's desire is to be worshipped. And he will finally get his chance. Jesus refused the offer when Satan came to Jesus. He said, if you'll worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus said, no. I won't do it. I worship God only. But this Antichrist 
he will yield to Satan's temptation. They worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? If you're, a, if you're a, an American, that ought to give you pause too. Because if we're some major player in Bible prophecy, why are we not able to step up and help? Verse 5, and there was given unto him what? A mouth. Here again, we see that, that characteristic of him. A mouth speaking great things and blasphemy. And power was given unto him to continue 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. Do you see that? That there's those who are dwelling in heaven at this point? And it's not just God and the angels. It's the saints who have been raptured, who have been taken up. In verse 7, it says, And it was given unto him to make war with who? Saints. These are not church saints. These are tribulation saints. And to overcome them. And power was given unto him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. That did not happen in the days of Titus. That did not happen in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. That has yet to happen. Let's go to the next slide, please. All right, let's, let's go back to Daniel 7 for just a moment. Daniel 7, 25 says, He shall speak great words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. This speaks of a continual weariness. You know, I, I believe there'll be economic sanctions against uh, Christians. I believe there'll be persecution, the likes of which we've never seen. Uh, and it's going to get worse before we leave here, I believe. What we're going to see, we're seeing a precursor to that. He shall think to change times and laws. And they shall be given unto his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Well, that's interesting. A time, times, and the dividing of time. So the little horn, he blasphemes, he persecutes the saints, and he thinks to change the times and laws. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I'm told in the Aramaic it's not plural. Laws is not plural. It's law. And if that's the case, it, it would mean the Torah. He, he's going to try to change the Bible. He's going to try to change the feast days. Now, here's just what my little pea brain thinks, okay? A lot of people say, well, what's going to happen when the rapture takes place? How are they going to explain it? I don't think it's going to be a great mystery. I think people are going to know we're gone. And I think they're going to know where we've gone. And I, don't, I think they're going to hate God. You read in the book of Revelation where all of the plagues are happening, and what does the Bible say? They didn't repent, but they blasphemed God. They're blaming God. Why? Because they know he's the one pouring down his wrath on them. That's important. Here's what my little pea brain thinks. I want to invite you to do some research. Research the World Economic Forum. Research the Great Reset. Okay? Just, just do these on your own time. I believe that when the rapture takes place, the Antichrist is going to say, you know what? It's time for a new world order. Let's just do away with a calendar. You know, the world can't get away from Jesus Christ, can they? Because even time is split in. Jesus Christ split human history. B.C. and A.D. And I believe he'll say, let's just reset this thing. Let's go to year one. 
and do away, he may even do, do away with a seven-day week because that's what God instituted. You notice how the devil is trying to do away with everything God put in place? In the beginning, God created them male and female. And now we say there's not two genders, there's a hundred. <clears throat> now the Holy Spirit, please don't leave me here. Stay with me. The Holy Spirit seems to place great emphasis on the fact that this period of time is a fixed period of time. It's not to be viewed as an allegory. Okay? And I'm not going to turn there for sake of time, but again, I invite you to fact check me on this, please. In Daniel 9, 27, verses, uh, in, in Daniel 12, verse 7, Revelation 11, verses 2 and 3, Revelation 12, verse 6, Revelation 12, verse 14, and Revelation 13, verse 5, it makes mention of the fact that there are 1260 days or three and a half years. When God says something once, listen to him. If he tells you twice, really pay attention. If he tells you four or five times, stop saying it's an allegory. It's the truth. The abomination of desolation takes place. Jesus spoke of that as a yet future event in Matthew 24, verse 15. Mark 13, verse 14. 2 Thessalonians, verse 3 and 4 speaks of this abomination of desolation. What is that? That's where the Antichrist, now for, uh, he makes a covenant, he, he signs a, a, a treaty for seven years. Book of Daniel chapter 9 says for one week, he, confirm, he makes a firm covenant for one week of years. And in the middle of the week, that's three and a half years. Three and a half is, is half of seven. In the middle of the week, he, he sets up the abomination of desolation. And what that is, is he will go into the temple of God, he'll set up an idol, and more, more than likely, it's an idol of himself, an image, image of himself. Proclaim himself to be God and demand to be worshipped. Let's go to the next slide. Now, the Antichrist has a climatic and dramatic end. Revelation 19, verse 10, says that the beast and the false prophet were cast alive into the lake of fire. Then you get over into Revelation 20, verse 10. And what you find out is that a thousand years have elapsed. And by the way, that's not a symbolic thousand years. It's a literal thousand years. It's mentioned six times in Revelation 20. Six times it talks about the thousand years. The Latin word is millennium. That's where we get that term from. And guess what? After a thousand years expire, guess who's still in the lake of fire? The beast and the false prophet. It says they're tormented forever, day and night. The Bible does not teach annihilation. It teaches eternal suffering for those who reject Christ. That's not popular. What a horrible thought. You know, I know some of you are dealing with problems. Some of you are dealing with sickness and, and trials of various kinds. But you know, one day your trials are going to be over. I don't, care how, I don't care how bad things are for you right now. The Bible says that I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. There is a better day for the saints of God. If you're a Christian, your best days are ahead of you, not behind you. If you're a believer, but if you don't have Christ in your life, this is as good as it's ever going to get. And that's a sad thought because this world is a fallen, cruel, unfair place. And if this is all it is, we are of all men most miserable. Psalm 2, again, I'm not going to turn there, but in Psalm 2, it's one of the great messianic psalms. It says, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? 
the kingdoms of the world gathered themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ, his Messiah. The kingdom of God is delivered to the saints of the Most High. Now this is important. Again, we're keeping our saints straight. Let's go to the next slide. I'm going to tell you why this is not the church. Reason number one is this, established, this, this kingdom is established following the Antichrist stage. We've not experienced that yet. Would you agree? There's, there, nobody's telling us to take the mark of the beast. Uh, nobody in Jerusalem in the temple. There's not even a temple right now. <laughs> okay. Number two, the church was established contemporary with the fourth empire. You know, the church was established while Rome was in power. So we've not seen the fulfillment of that yet. Number three, the kingdom replaces the Gentile empires on the earth. Are there still Gentile rulers in the world? Yep. And most of them hate Israel, by the way. It only happens after the destruction of the Gentile empires. Next is the kingdom of power and glory. I know there are some folks that say, we are living in the millennium right now. Really? That's a, that's a pretty lousy... It's a pretty lousy version of the millennium. If we're living in the reign of king, during the millennium, Satan is supposed to be bound. Is he bound right now? No, he rode to church with you this morning, didn't he? Don't look at your spouse. Don't look at your kids. He, don't turn on the news. We see that the devil is not bound. He's doing his thing. His work of, of stealing, killing, and destroying. Finally, this is, you know... Right now, we're not ruling and reigning. This is a time where we, we take up our cross. We're suffering. It's finally, it's a Jewish kingdom with a Jewish king. All right, let's go to the next slide, please. This is the last one, by the way. Now, what is Daniel's response? Verse 28, he says, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, the King James says, My cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Okay? So Daniel was troubled by the dream. He, he became, I would assume, pale. The blood drained from his face. I don't know. But it says his countenance was changed. But it also says he kept the matter in his heart. That reminds me of Mary when the angel told Mary and she pondered those things in her heart. Now what would we do if God had revealed that to us? We'd go on tour, wouldn't we? We'd have to go on a book tour, write a book. But Daniel, he, he keeps these things in his heart. And that's why I said, let's come to the table with a lot of humility because we don't understand everything. Um, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, please. This is very important. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. He's speaking of Antichrist, the little horn. Notice he has a time, and his time is not yet. It's not time for him. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now, now the King James says, letteth. A modern translation will say restrain. It's a restrainer. We don't use that word. Now, if I say, if I let you do something, it means I'm permitting you to do it. In the old English here, to let means to hinder or to prevent or to restrain. Only he who now lets will let until he's taken out of the way. And then, everybody say then. 
When? When the restrainer is taken away. And then shall the wicked be revealed. Here's, here again is another name for Antichrist. Wicked, the wicked one. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan. Remember the dragon gives him his power. And all power and signs and lying wonders, pseudo wonders. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, what cause? The fact that they would not receive the love of the truth when they had a chance. This is where you and me come in today. If you're sitting here today and you think, well, I'll just wait. Uh, Henry believes in the pre-trib rapture, and we see that there's some people who get saved after the trumpet sounds. I'll just wait, and I'll be one of those tribulation saints. You may not get that opportunity. Jesus said the same day that the Son of Man was, is revealed, it'll, there'll be raining fire just like it was in the days of Lot. There may be a nuclear event that coincides with the rapture. I don't know. So you may not get the opportunity. But here's the deal. Even if you were to survive, you've got a big problem. Because it says, for this cause, verse 11, God, notice it doesn't say the devil. It's one thing if the devil deceives you. But it says, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe. Now, in the King James, it says, a lie. The Greek article, definite article is there. The lie. The lie. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So you see, if you reject, listen to me very carefully, in the day of grace, if you reject Jesus Christ, you have no promise that you will have any opportunity after the rapture to get saved. Even if you are to survive, the Bible says God will send you strong delusion because you rejected the truth. I don't believe, now you can take it or leave it, I don't believe any folks in America are going to have a second chance because we have been saturated with the gospel. There's a church on every corner. And people say, well, I can't find a good church to go to. No, you can't find a church that preaches your version, your flavor of the truth. There's plenty of good churches around here. I would tell you some others, but I don't want to lose you. There's, I'm not the only game in town, but as far as you're concerned, I am, so don't leave me. The mystery of iniquity, you see that in verse 7, the mystery of iniquity already is at work. Now John says, in the first century, John says in 1 John, he says, even now are there many antichrists. We know the antichrist will come, but even now there are many antichrists. The spirit of antichrist is alive and well. I believe that right now you and I are being conditioned, this world is being conditioned to receive antichrist. I believe it. You know how we're being conditioned to receive antichrist? We're seeing it by the indoctrination of our children. They're being conditioned to receive Antichrist. History is being rewritten. You notice why there's such a strong push to remove statues? Why is everybody so crazy? If you don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it. Not all monuments are meant to be worshipped and re revered. Sometimes there's a monument in place to remember an atrocity that happened. Like the Holocaust Museum. It's not that we celebrate the Holocaust, but we have it as a reminder of what, what horrible things human beings are capable of when they follow the spirit of Antichrist. Hitler was an Antichrist, but not the Antichrist. This guy is going to be Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Mussolini uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, all wrapped into one dude. It's going to be terrible. 
How are we being conditioned by, te by teaching our children that communism and socialism is a good thing? <laughs> Look at Cuba. They want to be like America. And we got people in America that want to be like Cuba. Ask anybody that's, that's come from an oppressive regime and they'll tell you they don't want to go back to that. Socialism, which is really Marxism light, that's what it is. It's, it's atheistic government. That's what socialism and Marxism is. It's, it's government being God. Abolition of private property. Disarming of citizens. And it's all done for the greater good. How many times have you heard that? Everything we do, it's all for the greater good. Everything's good. We're, we're, doing, we're doing all these things. We're not doing it for ourselves, but we're doing it for other people. It's all under the guise of doing it to help our neighbor. And it sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds great. People are disarmed, and it's for their own safety, of course. Because guns kill people, not people. Cain didn't need a gun to kill Abel. Those guys on September the 11th, as far as I know, they didn't fire any shots, did they? They hijacked a plane. You know, a demon-possessed person will take a bus and run it into a group of people or a car or a plane or release a biological weapon or hack into a power grid or hack into our financials. You see, well, we've got all these missiles and stuff. We can't be defeated by anybody. Oh, don't be so sure. How else do we condition ourselves well there's heavy progressive taxation and it must be ever increasing so that we can expand what the government so that the citizens are dependent on the government from the womb to the tomb so let's let's don't let people go to work let's just send them money to stay home let's just send them money to stay home there's an increase of surveillance so that all of your activities are monitored. Some people say, well, I live off the grid. No, you don't. Everything you do is tracked. <laughs> you know, there's a profile of you. Each one of us have a profile. That's why when you log on to your social media, you see all kinds of stuff that they think is tailored to your particular desires and needs. It's because they're collecting information. I saw on the news just last night that our government is actually partnering with Facebook to monitor what's being posted on there. Now, it's amazing. They can't keep me from getting 12 friend requests a day from people I'm already friends with <laughs> or people trying to get me involved in a government program or married to a Nigerian prince or something. They're not interested in curing that. But, but by golly, post something about the coronavirus and see what happens. Post something about a vaccine and they're on it. Like white on rice. Right? Want to go door to door now and make sure you're vaccinated. All of these things are conditioning you and me to embrace this world leader. Okay? Today's the day of salvation. Would you stand? Sooner or later. A world leader is going to emerge, and I believe we're going to continue along this trend. The mystery of iniquity is already at work. He, you know, he's what he's called the man of lawlessness. All of these cries to defund the police, all these 
cause to get rid of authority, all of this rebellion against those who are in places of authority, is Antichrist. It's the spirit of Antichrist. And, and he's called the lawless one. The only thing standing between this world and totalitarian regime is the church. We are the last hope for this world. And soon and very soon, I believe the church is going to be out of here. And you don't want to be here. Now, here's the greatest offer I could ever make you. And I'm just a messenger. But Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. Jesus died in your place so that you don't have to go to the lake of fire for eternity. He bore his, in his own body your sins on the cross. And, and it sounds too good to be true, but the Bible says that if we come to him, if we repent, and that just means to change our mind, if we repent of our sins and we trust Christ as our Savior, that he will wipe our sins away as far as the east is from the west. That if, if we come to him, he will in no wise cast us out. He will save us, he'll set us free, and we can spend eternity with the Lord. And when the trumpet sounds, we don't have to worry if we're going to leave behind, be left behind. We don't have to worry if we'll never see our loved ones again. Because the scripture says that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And he says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. If you want that comfort and that peace today, Jesus Christ says, will you come? Would you come?